0: If we are looking for self-actualization or our best lives and the only arbiter of what it is to be self-actualized or to live our best lives are our own uh, thoughts, feelings, and desires, then we're kind of trapped in this loop of um, taking, taking what we want and raising it to the level of, as you say, an ought, a should. Um, I think we lack, uh, for, for many reasons, a kind of unified, uh, civic or societal sense of what we as, as human beings are for, uh, what are we doing? And so all too often the, uh, the language of self-actualization, the language of, uh, finding your individual purpose, uh, living life for you becomes a kind of, uh, you know, completely private endeavor that's somehow held up to the level of, uh, a moral duty for us as human beings, that if we don't self-actualize, we've somehow failed.
1: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights.
2: I'd love to welcome uh, Dr. Tara Isabella Burton, uh, the author of Strange Rights, uh, New religions for a godless world, and her upcoming book *Self Made*, which is an exploration of exactly that. For the last five hundred years through the Western tradition, uh, she is a frequent contributor to the New York Times. She was the former uh, uh, religion writer for Vox, uh, and has and is a PhD in theology from Oxford University in the UK, and a a. I would say one of the freshest and most interesting voices, um, integrating highbrow and lowbrow culture. So, so sort of the, both the ancient, historical, classical perspectives and academic, scholarly perspectives with the wildest and craziest stuff like Sleep No More and Soul Cycle uh, and and incel you know, Reddit boards. So, um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you, Tara, to Homegrown Humans. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm very excited.
2: Brilliant. Well, listen, I mean I've got a, I've got a list of, of fun topics that I' would love to talk you know ch- ch- chat with you about. Um, but first, I'd love to just kind of hear, you know what is in some respects your sort of your opening thesis statement as far as you have one that you know, that is coherent other than just looking at a bunch of wild uh, stuff these days. Um, what do you think is going on? In the sphere of meaning, circa early twenty first century, let's just we can keep it to America. You know, if weave in anything else. What what on earth is happening to us right now? Uh,
0: I think we're in what you might call a, a crisis of reality, which is to say, uh, a lack of cultural certainty about um, what what it is to be real, to be authentic, to be true. And in particular, I think that we're seeing, uh, and this is the the thesis of my upcoming book, "Self Made," uh, a shift in how we see uh, the truth about ourselves and where we think of that truth coming from. Uh, very simplistically, uh, broad broad strokes overview um, over the past. 500 odd years, we've largely moved from a society where we think of ourselves as fundamentally given. Uh, we are uh, who we are because of our role in the social order, our relationships to one another. Um, this is what is what is real about us. And increasingly, we're moving towards a culture uh, for a bunch of reasons, uh, the decline in uh organized religion and organized particular kind of organized ways of thinking about ourselves uh, but also um, more broader cultural cultural shifts Um, we now I think are more inclined to think of ourselves as who we want to be our desires our feelings uh, and in particular our vision of ourselves is increasingly understood for better and for worse I don't think this is a positive exclusively positive or negative development um, as um the kind of guiding star for who we, we really are. We have become who we want to be.
2: Ah, well in fact that that uh, that really tees up um, I think something from one of your most recent pieces in the times. because uh, you, you have a you have a, a quote here where you say, because basically you were describing this exactly kind of choose your own adventure, Ursat, spirituality, and and in this case you were talking about the the sort of current um, Instagram TikTok therapy mm-hmm. space. Right. Um, And you said the idea that we are authentic only insofar as we cut ourselves off from one another, that the truest or most fundamental parts of our humanity can be found in our desires and not our obligations, and uh, not our obligations, risks cutting us off from one of the most important truths about being human that we are social animals. And to me, that very much echoed a piece that I think David Brooks wrote, I don't know how long ago, three, four years ago in, in, in the Times as well, which, which was basically the evolution of marriage and how, you know, it was originally, you know, fundamentally, these were political tracts of some kind, you know, they, they, they were peacemaking agreements, et cetera. Then Tristan and Azult, you know, the, the notion of romantic love, and then that became the thing. And then it became actually, this is supposed to be about my self actualization. And if you don't complete me, but also optimize me, I'm going to be triply resentful. And his point was just, hey, I think we might we might be overburdening this singular relationship, and it feels you know you were coming at it from the sort of broader um, you know social media therapy space, uh, but it seemed like a kind of a, an erosion of of oughts and shoulds, <laughs> and and almost a sort of um, a, a foregrounding of entitled narcissism. I mean, Absol- how, how do you see this?
0: Absolutely, I mean, I think that there there is of course, uh, great good in the notion that um, our innermost selves, that which makes us distinct, uh, should be seen as uh, part of who we really are. I don't want to uh, I'm not the kind of uh, conservatives who says we we need to go back to an era where we only define ourselves by our social bonds and everything else is just selfishness at the same time though, I think we ha- the pendulum has swung far too far the other way. I think we are so inclined to thinking of ourselves as um you know all on our own individual hero's journey and other people as as characters in that journey. And ultimately, um, our our goal, our endpoint, is not something that we can usefully communicate because it's not um, it's not either shared or um, let's say related to some kind of truth outside of ourselves. Uh, if we are looking for self actualization or our best lives, and the only arbiter of what it is to be self actualized or to live our best lives are our own uh thoughts, feelings, and desires, then we're kind of trapped in this loop of um taking taking what we want and raising it to the level of, as you say, an ought, a should. Um, I think we lack uh for for many reasons, a kind of unified uh civic or societal sense of what we as, as human beings are for. Uh what are we doing? And so all too often the, uh, the language of self-actualization, the language of uh, finding your individual purpose, uh, living life for you, becomes a kind of uh, you know completely private endeavor that's somehow held up to the level of uh, a moral duty for us as human beings, that if we don't self-actualize, we've somehow failed.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I must say, in in, in going back through uh, Strange Rights, I, I there were there were passages, entire sections, actually, where I'm like, whew, this is one hell of an indictment of millennials," um, and the sort of vapid, superficial, ego stroking, consumptive, sensation seeking um, behavior pattern. But then really you roll it up and it's really an indictment of boomers because those were the fucking parents of this generation. And you're like, dear God, what did you guys pass on from the late 60s through the 70s and the human potential movement and all of these kind of things. And what, what bastard, metastasized things are we seeing now with just a silicon digital commercial layer on top?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think perhaps we, we don't want to just blame the, mo- the boomers. I think with a with a more historical look as I as I take in, in self-made. I think we've been seeing uh, waves of this kind of individual individualism and uh obsession with with sort of personal desire and authenticity for you know let's say the renaissance onwards maybe the enlightenment onwards if we're being more charitable at the same time the kind of tools that we have now uh the internet most prominently and the way in which um our desires literally shape what we see and how we uh participate in discourse and one another uh is is sort of gone into overdrive our actual the uh the landscape of so much of our lives, the internet, uh, runs on the very principles that were sort of, we might say, once ideological and now have, have been made uh, quite literally manifest. Uh, at the same time, though, I uh, I do think that uh, our culture is uh, bordering on narcissistic. Let's say I won't go all the way to say that we are. And yet, um, I think it's also very easy to understand how it happened. I don't think it's just uh, a, a moral... Uh, failing on the parts of people who who look inwardly or look look inside themselves rather I think we're also looking at institutional failure more broadly that um if we don't trust our political authorities our journalistic authorities our, our scientific authorities uh if if our we're worried about corruption and sex abuse scandals in our churches and uh misinformation more broadly of course, you would look inwardly. Of course, you would turn to yourself. you it's 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 completely um, understandable that when institutions have failed uh, and they have and uh, failed to uh, keep public trust, um, that that tendency to to look inside the self, you know, you think, well, you know, anyone else could be lying to me at least hypothetically speaking, I know I'm not lying to myself.
2: people lie to themselves all the time yeah
0: exactly and people do lie to themselves all the time of course but um nevertheless i think i i think that that's the thought process that gets us into solipsism that it's a combination of as you say this kind of cultural tendency towards narcissism alongside a deep pessimism about um what organizations civic organizations uh political, broadly construed as a polity um, organizations can can do or achieve. We don't have that trust.
2: Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I just wrote about that in my last book, Recapture the Rapture, about the meaning crisis, right? And meaning 1.0 being traditional religions and then meaning 2.0 being kind of secular modernism institutions. And the fact that both are gone <laughs> is leaving a vacuum for all of the things that you've, you've done such a, a fun job tracking um now now a, a recent thought cuz i was just having a, a quick email exchange with uh a, a buddy in the uk ali bina um, who was part of rebel wisdom for a while and is now writing his own book and in fact i think he even said he he uh referenced strange rights in that um but he wrote an interesting piece lately just talking about the growing backlash of trauma culture trauma therapy and the idea that like yes everybody's read bessel van der kolk and peter levine and everybody understands the issues that are in the tissues and everybody's you know just fetishizing their Past trauma, and really, the fact is, is this is just one more flavor of the week, and sort of regresses into absurdity, um, and and the idea of like, well, wait, I mean, even Gabor Mate, who I've you know uh, spent some time on panels with and had had good heart to heart conversations with, it's sort of like if everything comes down to trauma, from ADD to addiction to isolation to you know to to our, the collapse of democracy. Then nothing does, and the question is not that. That's now a constant in our equation. The question is is who who prevails in spite of it, and how do we do that? Um, and so I was curious. I don't know if you remember Barbara Ehrenreich's book about positive, like pop psychology and mm-hmm. posi- how toxic positivity was, right? And to yes. me, at, at first, you just think, wow, these are antithetical. One is saying that excess, positive self-help is toxic. And on the other is, wait, this obsession with trauma is potentially toxic. But I mean, arguably, there I think there, there may be flip sides of the same coin that you're pointing out with this sort of solipsistic narcissism.
0: I mean, I think that this, I agree. I think that this obsession that we do have with uh, trauma, I think comes actually from a broader obsession with this kind of Mythologizing ourselves as as individuals. I mean, I think you can say of of any person, uh, you can tell a hundred different stories about why they are the way they are, who who they are, um, the the societies in which they live, uh, ways in which uh, gender or or race or any any one of a dozens hundreds of other qualities have affected them. Um, we also and and yet somehow I think that one of the stories that we're most interested in telling about ourselves, about other people, and foregrounding is this kind of almost a Joseph Campbellian hero's journey story of these individuals sort of overcoming certain kinds of darkness or or difficulty that comes from personal relationships. And this might be very much, I mean, it is, I'm sure, true of all of us that um, our experiences shape us and make us who we are. And yet when this one particular narrative um, that I think does kind of mythologize certain certain kinds of family relationships, certain kinds of um, emotional reactions more broadly, um, when we focus on that to the exclusion of other truths about who we are uh, and other truths about um, who we might be and what, what we might uh, accomplish, not just in the sense of uh, achieving something, but how we might live a, a good or a, a good life as well as one that is personally fulfilling. Suddenly this this narrative of of trauma and overcoming trauma um I think crowds out questions that I think are interesting and useful, like what should we be doing? What what does a good life look like? Um, how ought we to live? And these are questions that um aren't necessarily based in in human des- uh sorry they're not necessarily uh based in in our our feelings our emotions or our psychological well-being um they can be but (laughs) i am i'm which is to say i don't think we should stop talking about trauma but rather um investigate why this quite individual psychological narrative is so central to the the myth of who we are rather than other stories, um, other mm-hmm. myths, even uh, that might look more constructively about what it means to be human and what kind of obligations we might have, as well as the kind of freedom that we seek in overcoming, uh, overcoming our past.
2: Yeah, it almost feels like we're sort of at peak America, you know, like it, that 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 whole individualist expression, and and and, you, and you're absolutely right to say it's not new. I mean, you know, you for sure, date it to the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. Anywhere you're seeing the seeds of those those thoughts, but for sure in the U.S., you know, first and second great awakenings, 1730s and 40s, early 1800s, right? This the, the, the it was chapter and verse. Our old, our parents and our grandparents lost the plot. They are under the thumb of stuffy, rigid, hierarchical religions. We crave direct, immediate sense, you know, sense of spirit and spirituality and community. And then, oh, wouldn't you know it, also social justice you know abolition right women's suffrage all of these things then springing out of those movements so in in the, in the nothing new under the sun category right we've we've seen this all before um i am curious as to you know you you mentioned i mean to me this sort of there is this insidious co-optation of the spiritual marketplace these days, and it feels like—and I'm sure there's many more threads than this—but at least two main currents is the sort of the uh, commodification of the prosperity gospel intersecting with digital distribution and and, and commerce, basically online, Insta- Instagram shamans, life coaches, all that kind of stuff. Um, t- talk to me about that. Like, what what have you? Because I mean we you know I, I live here in austin right it's a very secular you know bicoastal kind of place but it's in the heart of red america and on the corner of our street to turn to our house um is a mega church well it started out as just a church church and it has become in the last 10 years an absolute honking great mega church and they've got a k through 12 school and they've got a coffee shop and they've got parking garages and they've got you know sports sp- Fields and they've got, you know, and then they've done aggressive roll-ups of all the other underperforming churches for a hundred-mile radius. And now that's just the center tele, tele, you know, televangelist station to beam out to all of their subjects things. And then the cops every Sunday literally block traffic. It's the most weird thing, intersection of church and state. Uniformed cops stopping regular people driving down the road so that the Escalades and the Lincolns and and the and the giant shiny SUVs, which is all they are, are parading out of this thing. And you're like, dear God, how do they capitalize this thing? You know? And you're like, oh shit. Well, it feels to me like there is some because you you make a point in Strange Rice. You're saying, hey, actually, um, you might think that with all of this emphasis on the self and with all this modernization and secularization, that the more like the Unitarians would be kicking ass, you know, the, 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 right, the various sort of soft choose your own adventure Protestant, mainline Protestant religions would be doing better. They're not, they're collapsing. And it's the ones arguably like Hillsong, which maybe do super fun and sexy. Like, is this a, is this a Diplo concert or is this church, you know, but on the other hand, the, the, the theologies are really regressive. And arch traditionalist, um, you've got that, and 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 you've realized, oh shit, okay, so my marketing is come or lose your eternal soul, and by the way, tithe, you know, ten percent of your income. But the flip side is that the interest, I mean, and that worked. That's worked for thousands of years, right? That was the pitch, <laughs> you know, come or burn in hell. Come now or burn in hell later, and um, but. The American twist of the prosperity gospel is not only are we saying um, this is a down payment on your future salvation; it's you come and new thought, Norman Vincent Peale, all those things you get, you get to you know you get law of threefold return. You can prosper in this lifetime, which seems like a total bastardization of Calvinism, right? And 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 mm. so you get it now and later, and there's not another there's not other thing out there that can beat that marketing pitch.
0: Absolutely. I mean I th- I think that particularly certain kinds of megachurches uh, uh are successful because they blend two uh very distinct uh phenomena uh, both of which are incredibly uh powerful and one is um as you say this kind of promise of a certain kind of uh self actualization uh and uh prosperity in this life the idea that you are doing this uh as part of your like complete healthy life that uh will ultimately get you to your best life. Um I think particularly with the the narratives of things like the prosperity gospel uh which is is um not not uh, universal among evangelical churches but certainly more common uh there than in other Christian denominations. Um but this this idea that uh the universe god uh because it, you find in both secular and religious versions but the the power out there what it wants for you is for you to live a life of health, wealth, and certain kinds of material happiness where you feel fulfilled. And I think you find this also in secular versions of this, uh, when wellness culture, for example, um, you are doing this for yourself. You are doing this to fill your personal need. Now, uh, at odds with this, and here is, I, I think, something that um, is perhaps a good thing, and perhaps even that these, these evangelical churches you mentioned are, are doing well, is uh, making a robust truth claim about the nature of the world. Um hmm. I think yeah. you know and and I uh you go to church and and the the narrative is not eh, i believe what you want like maybe this happened maybe it didn't mm, I don't want to tell you what to do um but to say yeah this is what we believe and this is how um what we believe affects all elements of how we live our lives, uh, the way that we think about our relationships to one another, the way that we think about our relationships to the natural world, um, these are these are truth claims that are being made. And I think that where the Protestant mainline, um, particularly in the 1950s onwards, really lost people was uh, kind of in trying to reconcile Christianity and quote unquote modernity, uh, really seeding the idea that there is something true and and real. Uh, to to so seating uh, with
2: a C not oh, double oh yes e. yes yeah, exactly
0: yeah. um yeah exactly um I think that um there is something I think that we do um have perhaps a bit of a bullshit detector inwardly about this I think we do hunger for um robust truth claims um, maybe we believe them maybe we don't um, but ultimately we are looking for something that is is not just uh our personal fulfillment or enjoying a, uh, Sunday service because the music is, is good, be it, uh, Gregorian chant or Justin Bieber. Um, but we, we, I think we do hunger for, um, as curious beings, um, what is it all for? Is there a God? What is out there? And those, uh, those, those, those claims, um, I think we are warier and warier of making as a culture, again, for better and for worse, because uh, certainly there's a, a plenty of drawbacks to top-down uh, authoritarian dogma. Uh, at the same time, the, the alternative where we all just sort of create our own realities and we all invent our own religions, as it were, and um, look at our relationship with the infinite merely as, well, what makes me feel good? What gets me through the day? Like, Mm -hmm. how how do i personally feel like uh structuring god in my mental universe um that comes at at the expense of of um some of the thing the good things that religion uh can do and has historically done which is uh point us towards uh, an ultimate reality uh greater than ourselves outside ourselves and towards um claims of of uh, both metaphysical truth and ethical truth that make demands on us that are sometimes hard but nevertheless um, claim to be good, like capital G good. There are there are ways in which we might want to sacrifice for one another. We may be called upon to be vulnerable to one another that don't really result in us living our best lives. And when we C-E-D-E seed, uh, the The idea that there can be some kind of reality outside ourselves that um, might have a greater claim, feelings, uh, it's very difficult to then not have a theology that revolves around what we feel like at any given time. Because there is nothing else out there. If there is nothing else out there, why not just mm-hmm. have our own religions? Why not just make ourselves our own gods in the first place?
2: Well, well, and so what, what's coming up for me is sort of this this contrast between something like Hillsong, right? Because I mean, again, you know, for those that didn't know, it and don't know it, you know, big giant, very hip mega church recently went down in flames for all the predictable scandalous reasons. Um, but had big, you know, big uh, churches in L.A. in New York, and then you know there was a. So, you know, and and the Kardashians went, and Bieber went, and you know, and and NBA players went, and all the things, and it was the hype, hype priests was the, I think was the GQ article that I think was a a funny one, you know, like designer jeans and leather jackets and earrings. But we're going to talk about Jesus, um, and you know, and it was also the big dumb hat people. It was all the Williamsburg hipsters, you know, <laughs> and 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 that. So so almost visually, right, and thematically identical to the Kanshi psychedelic transformational festival crowd i mean and probably some surprising amounts of overlap as as people went checking stuff out and and yet in the conchi psychedelic crowd right they've eschewed orthodox scripture ethics etc but you know it's, it's a moving target but somewhere in the center is a kind of organized worldview of what reality is. Maybe it's fifth density and maybe we're going to do this and that and we're going to vibrate out and we're the star tribe and soul seed people or whatever, whatever the fuck they're going to talk about. But there is a there there, even if it is just sort of algorithm, you know, determined by the YouTube algorithm. So um, if you had to put your money in the meme wars on which expression, right, would, will prevail, which is a fitter meme, right? Is it, the you know like let's wrap it all up in smoke machines and, and 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 lasers but this is old school theology right versus everybody gets to choose your own adventure and we kind of have an amorphous cosmology often you know informed by an adult by direct sacramental experience of plant medicines right like which one do you think is 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 more stable durable or sort of capable of propagating without degradation
0: uh I think uh, my answer is twofold, which is that I think we are going to see uh, the kind of amorphous uh, intuitional religion uh, get more and more common, but the center cannot hold, which is to say there's not going to be one thing uh, within that kind of increasingly uh, kaleidoscopic landscape that um, is able to form some kind of like coalition, as it were. And so ultimately, I think it's these, these older forms of uh metaphysics of religion I don't, whatever you want to call it um the ones that make the truth claims the ones that uh make metaphysical or ethical uh demands on on people are the ones that are going to be able to kind of remain uh not always unified but relatively unified uh and possibly even come in when when the dust has settled and we're all in our own you know we're all in our own religions of one and suddenly there's something out there that is going to have momentum and staying power but i don't think necessarily uh we are immediately going to see a resurgence of you know evangelical christianity tomorrow uh, but i do think and i think we are seeing uh revivals of interest in um everything from traditionalist catholicism among young people to um in a, in a slightly different way the social justice movement but um interest in uh, robust, ethically or metaphysically, weighty, uh, narratives of how to live.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, does that does that for you? Is that different than what you were describing with the kind of hero's journey? Everyone's on our, on their own personal adventure. Is uh, there kind of a categorical difference in in how those feel as orienting lodestones?
0: Yes, yes, and I I, I want to be careful there because when I when I I think. And as I've written in Strange Rights, and I, I don't love talking about the social justice movement just because it leads to culture war conversations that uh, are are not always the most interesting to be having. But I think that that, that that sort of movement is something that has both elements of the kind of intuitional uh, modernity attached to it, as well as a kind of hunger for something more solidaristic and uh, less individualistic. Uh, but certainly I think the uh, experience of being... Um, I'll, I'll speak from my own personal experience. I'm an Episcopal, uh, believing, practicing Episcopalian Christian. And there is something about, I don't really feel like getting up right now. And, you know, maybe I'm going to go to church. And sometimes I'm not having the uh, emotional response, be- beautiful though the music is, uh, that I should be having. Maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I want to go to brunch. But here I am. And this kind of practice of my my life, my time my existence is not my own it is gathered up in a sense of the cosmos a sense of the liturgical year even Mm. um that is not uh simply what i make it um that that sense uh and that mode of living to me uh, as someone who kind of came back to christianity as an adult uh did mark from personal experience a profound shift in how i thought about myself and i thought about the world Oh, interesting. Um, so,
2: so, so, just sh- share to the extent that you'd like to that sure. notion back to so where from to now yeah. and then how on Earth in 2020 to 2023 did you come back to the Episcopal Church of all places?
0: Gosh, well, so I was raised as uh, many New Yorkers are. It's kind of like Christmas and Easter, Episcopalian, you know, not particularly religious, but not not religious either. A Little mm. Jewish, a little Christian, typical New York upbringing. Uh, studied theology uh, because of intellectual interest. Probably would have like ticked the Christian box on paper, but didn't think that much about it. Uh, and probably uh, was very much involved in the kind of world of New York that I write about in Strange Writes. Um, I, I did my 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 wellness and my my early morning Soul Cycles and. Uh, you know a dabble of witchcraft here a little bit of tarot there um and and you know i'm not going to, to go and say you know all of this was terrible and, and satanic or something i i don't think that necessarily um but i think that i did come back to um a more robust dedicated vision of faith somewhere around 2018 2019 it was a slow process uh began attending church every Sunday, uh, and becoming kind of much more conscious of, of that as a a grounding metaphysical and ethical commitment. And Mm -hmm. I think that, a a shift in the biggest shift, uh, again, speaking purely personally, uh, was a sense that narratives of personal freedom or personal fulfillment, um, were, were less, became less important to me than, uh, questions of what does the good life look like how what are what are our obligations to one another and how do we live those out um i became i think hopefully less focused on on myself and what i wanted Uh obviously there's uh everybody focuses a little bit everybody focuses on themselves and what they want i didn't you know suddenly elevate myself to statehood or anything like that but i think that the um the kind of questions I was asking myself, the kind of way that I thought about the world uh, was became, I, I believe, more focused on and interested in the ways in which um, I do not choose who I am, or I do not choose what my life is going to look like. And um, I became more interested in, in what I would call uh, givenness, the ways in which... Um, I am a person in the world, in a community, uh, with certain realities about myself that that I did not pick, that nevertheless make me who I am. And part of my understanding of my my own ethical commitments comes in obligations that I did not choose to the communities that, you know, familial and otherwise, that uh, nevertheless I am part of. I didn't, you know, wake up one morning and say, hey, I would love to be... My mother's daughter, and I would love to be, you know, from New York in this way. These are just these are just truths about who I am. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh sorry, these are these are truths about who I am that nevertheless come with certain kinds of responsibilities. And I think ultimately, uh speaking again sort of purely fix-
2: fixity of self versus marriage. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And and obviously uh there's there's a balance. There are, I think, I think to say we are fully fixed as human beings and you know our own internal selves mean are, are are simply distractions from who we really are i i don't buy that either but i think that um i think that for me again purely personally uh organized religion has been a really fulfilling to use the word the word of uh, a word i'm not sure how i feel about using um, Corrective or counterweight to a culture that all too often I feel tells me that I should be out there looking for some kind of mysterious actualization that uh, may or may not exist.
2: Yeah, that that your your arc reminds me of a really interesting book um, by friend Alan Zigzag Zen. I don't know if you ever came across it. It was basically it's 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 a fascinating story of psychedelics into seventies uh, Dharma to the West American Buddhism, and it was hmm. basically after the freewheeling. 60s, find your bliss, do all the things, shoot the moon. Uh, there was this huge movement away from all that stuff by the early to mid 70s and saying we crave some structure, we crave some discipline, we crave to be within the walls right of, 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 of a lineage. Um, and so instead of zigzag zen, this almost feels like sort of crisscross cr- Christ. You know, <laughs> you've been sort of like bouncing around but but finding your way. Now you, you mentioned a couple of times um, a penchant for midnight masses and other Gregorian deep stuff. So so you you've been also seeking out the pre-Vatican II old timey.
0: Uh well I'm, I'm not Catholic, so luckily sure. uh but yeah, uh, you, you know what I mean. Yeah. But um I I mean personally. And again, I fully recognize that that um, you could say, "Well, you're just doing your own version of, of aesthetics, the same way as as anyone else is." Uh, I I do respond very much to um, the Latin and the incense and the you know 15th century bells. music. Exactly, yeah. uh, I do belong to an Anglo Catholic parish, um, and I I I think that while I recognize that it is uh, easier perhaps for me to experience uh to to feel the presence of god let's say in a church that looks like that um Mm -hmm. i am very committed to the idea that this is not um that it kind of also does like it doesn't really matter if i am somewhere and there is a church that is you know i'm not a big fan of the electric guitar praise music but you know what if that's the church and i'm going in there um i have to check my own uh dislike for this particular music and say all right this is this is this is not the aesthetic that I prefer, but it is not a uh, lesser or or worse uh, in any way. So I, well, I do well, well,
2: want. So, so so here's a fun one. Then so what about Grace Episcopal Cathedral in San Francisco doing the Church of Beyonce? What, what 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 was your your take on that or your experience of it? Both sort of as as an academic observer and then also as an Episcopalian.
0: Uh, gosh, so I'm, I'm I'm not familiar with this. I'm afraid. Can you oh. tell me a little more about it?
2: Yeah, for sure. They yeah. just basically did church of Beyonce masses and they went hugely viral. And so it was sort of Wednesday Wednesday evenings and they were using Beyonce's songs as hymns and the discussion of triumph and travail and suffering and redemption and all of these kind of things and then videos went out and went viral and you know not not yeah. <laughs> not too unpredictably and then everywhere from LA to Lisbon, you know, all around the world, they kind of sprung up and they started being offering these. And it was from, um, I think, Union Theological Seminary. Um, and and it was just kind of this beautiful grassroots movement. It was it was led by the kind of um, black queer community predominantly, mm-hmm. but then kind of expanded its, you know, its embrace to include, you know, anybody who felt um, called to it. And it was just this kind of really beautiful mashup, you know, of, of traditional and pop.
0: I mean, if 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 again, if you say it's an Episcopal church, you know, if they're if they're doing it with the prayer book and and uh, some I, some secular music, I think my my instinct is a is a little bit of of wariness uh, of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm aware that um, especially we we do have a very rich and broad uh, musical tradition within the Episcopal Church. Um, actually, no, but I think I I'm actually gonna. I, I don't know enough about it to have an informed opinion, so maybe we just um, move move on from that one. Because yeah, I love enough. to I love to know more, but uh, without without um, coming to it, I can't have an intelligent opinion. I'm not afraid.
2: For sure. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah. it's in. Yeah, I covered it a bit in Recapture the Rapture, so it's right. in a couple of those excerpts. You can you can dig into it. But it's you know as much as anything, I just think it's just fun to know that those kind of mutations are out there, and that they're landing for people who might not who might be in the unchurched or recovering. Fill in the blank category mm-hmm. you know as just as just on ramps back now um a couple of questions just 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 to um conclude this this little exploration and thank you for it um how was this path for you in your return to the church socially Was it something that your friend said, oh, that's nice, Tara. I hope you have a good time, you know, or was it something that collectively a a group of you found your way to how did, how did that live within your otherwise, I would imagine, sort of, you know, mobile, educated, cosmopolitan New York scene?
0: Um, I think this trend, it was relatively, I would say a smooth transition. I think um, there was perhaps a bit of wariness on the, uh, the part of friends of mine who we like are more in the certain kinds of progressive camp like ooh you know you're going to church like we associate this with homophobia and uh, other bad things uh, and i think uh one of the wonderful things about uh friendship is that you can have these kind of conversations uh lovingly and i can say you know yep i'm i'm you know going to church but that doesn't you know this doesn't mean i'm uh suddenly a homophobe or what have you. In fact, my my church, there's I think my my church is extremely quick extremely queer affirming. Um, but I think that um one of the things that struck me is that people were really, really interested in it. Uh regardless of whether they were Christian themselves, Jewish, uh practicing witches, everything in between. Uh, I think there was a real sense that like spirituality is something is a source of incredible fascination for, for people, um, whether or not they are themselves members of organized religion. Um, I think I, when I studied theology, every time I tell people I studied theology at a, at a party, people come around me and like, everyone has something that they want to say, or, uh, everybody has some, you know, deep emotional connection to the idea of religion and, you know, wants to take me to corner and say, well, this is what I think. and This is what I believe. Um, and I think that that does speak to the fact that we think of ourselves as living in a, a secular world. A lot of the time or a secular society, um, but really we do have um, a shared hunger that without a shared discourse about what that hunger looks like or means. Um, I think this, this crisis of meaning, as you call it, the crisis of reality, is, as I might call it is sort of is twofold. It's we don't share a, a set of common Uh, of common vocabulary or uh, a common way of talking about uh, what meaning is and out and what it might look like and yet i think that we are all in our own ways acutely conscious of the absence of that and hungry for it um so
2: god-shaped hole in our hearts
0: exactly and i i think it's both both the kind of god-shaped hole but actually it's i think it's a a hunger for a shared language to talk about it as much as anything else uh it's not just a a whole for, of or a desire for private spirituality, although I think that is true, but also a hunger for um, some way of understanding, a hunger for language to talk about the whole to begin with. Uh, and so being someone of faith, even in uh, various secular corners of New York has never been uh, that weird or that difficult uh, so much as it's just been uh, often an occasion for people to, uh, whether or not they're wary of, of Christianity, um want to share their own experiences and curiosities about faith in general. It's uh, we're all we're all a little god haunted, I think, even in uh, secular New York.
2: Oh. Well I mean, even just what you said, right? You said you, you said every time I go to a party and I tell this people gather around me. That simply wouldn't have been the case ten years earlier. And you you, you would have been on the long skinny tail of irrelevant mm-hmm. nerd dumb. Like I got a PhD in theology. People are like, okay, pass the, pass the punch, <laughs> like whatever, you know? And the fact that you, your experience is so antithetical to that, I find fascinating in itself, right? That just you are providing permission for people to then uncork all of these bottled emotions and yearnings. Yeah, it's,
0: it's been, I, I remember... Uh being very worried that my my degree made me like weird or no one would want to talk to me at parties. And then, you know, it's been it's been completely the opposite. So uh, I'm glad nobody thinks I'm a big nerd or maybe they <laughs> do and just don't tell me.
2: All right. So now, now we're going to move into the, the mm-hmm. culture war game, but you get to choose your own adventure and the promise is that we don't get down into the trenches. What okay. I'm interested in is our topics that are relevant and germane to people, but that we're continuing to maintain the perspective mm-hmm. that we both write mm-hmm. about and hold. So take your pick, J.K. Rowling or QAnon.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, J.K. Rowling.
2: Okay. So because because in Strange Rights, right, you you write this wonderful bit about how, again, millennial spirituality, uh, the kind of ima- intersection of the imaginal, fan fiction, all of these cool things, and then specifically the scenes in the early Trump administration, of, and I think it was maybe even one of the nightclub, it was one of the mass shooting protests, and there was mm-hmm. a, all sorts of- March for of, our lives. Yeah, right? There was all sorts of Harry Potter-ish, like, we're Dumbledore's army, like, Expeller Amis, like, you know, like, there was the riffing and the memeing. Right. Mm-hmm. Of the generation that came up with that. And I was just, and as I was reading it, I'm like, oh, whoa. And I, I was like, I think this was like 2018. When did when did Tara write this? Because boy, am I waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right. And then, you know, obviously for, you know, folks that haven't been living under a rock on Twitter, which, which is actually a very good place to be on Twitter um, is, you know, obviously uh, Rowling has sort of put her foot in it in, in a bunch of different ways and become massively non grata in large swaths of the very community that was championing her. Memes, ideas, stories, mm-hmm. characters—just a few years earlier. So, if we take—if um, we take, let's—I don't know what we've got. We've got Harry Potter land in the middle, mm-hmm. and then you've got SJW as a as a sort of—I uh, would say, in some respects, a hermetically sealed moral universe, and mm-hmm. alt right as as an alternate one. How are you seeing? Um, that change of events because i mean boy it would be an impossible one to have called out in advance
0: um so i think what's fascinating about uh, jk rowling's uh fall fall from grace as it were uh, and the the cultural ship about her books um is that Harry Potter has always been the kind of canary in the coal mine for uh, certain cultural shifts in general. Um, when Harry Potter came out uh, in in the late 90s, it was sort of around the time of the dawn of personal internet use at home in, in America. Suddenly, you know, you had a, a, with your dial-up connection or what have you, you had access to certain kinds of message boards and fan culture that really didn't exist before that. You might have, you know, uh, analog zines or Trekkie conventions but you didn't have this internet access and Harry Potter was the first big like internet fueled fandom and one of the kind of big things that made Harry Potter so successful was that the sort of fan culture and fanfic culture really sprung up around it. You could write your own endings uh, Harry Potter, you know, the Harry Potter universe was this huge, huge world that you could, you know, it was a big sandbox you could play in uh, and people very much did and that kind of fan culture of like, these are our stories and we can mix and match and rewrite the way that suits us, which I think trickled down to how we think about cultural properties, uh, media more broadly. Uh, thereafter um, really started with Harry Potter as this site of um, the transmission of authority from the author who decides what happens to the fans, the readers who can reimagine, rewrite, rework, remix uh, content.
2: It's very, very Stanley Fish reader response kind of stuff.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so when, however many decades later, uh, J.K. Rowling, who who's kind of har- Harry Potter at this point, is like among the closest thing we have to like, uh, I don't know, the Iliad or the Odyssey. is a modern foundational myth that affects how so many of us, uh, I have to admit I'm not a particular fan, but like culturally speaking, if you say to someone, I'm a Gryffindor, I'm a Hufflepuff, like, more people um, know what that means than I think can name the four Gospels. Um, that's, and I, I think I think there's a, or at least more Americans have seen at least one of a Harry Potter movie than uh, in one one study could name the four Gospels. Um, there you go. So cut to, J.K. Rowling uh, has views that many uh, deem offensive about uh, trans people. Uh, she sort of allied herself with what we, uh, we might call the trans-exclusionary radical feminists of uh, in the UK, particularly uh, a burgeoning movement, uh, and a lot of people who younger people who saw in in Harry Potter uh, certain values, uh, certain values of of uh, inclusion, uh, feel alienated from this universe by mm-hmm. uh, their, the sort of the creators' uh, political views that are that are so at odds with theirs. Uh, so what happens? Uh, she kind of gets booted out of her own universe uh yeah. in a way uh in a way that i think is uh is fascinating because what what is harry potter but this kind of the first instance of fan culture and reimagining what ownership looks like so you know it 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 almost feels like a perfectly fitting ending that now now the kind of the fans are are able to say you know this is our world we'll reimagine this this world if we have to we don't want to support JK Rowling financially but you know what does that mean for for fan fiction or the stories we tell in that world which are uh distinct from the stories that this person might make money from um and and so I think uh regardless Mm -hmm. of of the sort of specifics of uh JK Rowling's views uh it could have been this it could have been something else it almost feels like the perfect conclusion that the fans, the fans occupied, uh, the world that the, uh, the author once held.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really curious to sort of really just slow the tape down
0: mm-hmm. right
2: here in those transitions. And it could just be right. I mean, we could be overthinking this and it could just be, everybody's lost their mind and we've really stuck. We've started being increasingly shitty to each other and social media algorithms of outrage have raced to the bottom of the brainstem and that's the world we live in. Ta-da. Right. But you know, for, for, Rowling, like it's such an interesting thing because she did, there were so many signs and signifiers of unimpeachable progressive credentials, right? Not only should she sow the myth that everyone grew up with and loved of, of this generation, but she was one of the first and only billionaires to give away so much of her wealth. She lost her billionaire status. She was pro, you know, social services and high tax rates in England. Like I benefited from that leg up when I needed it. I want others to. She was a self-described sexual survivor of sexual violence right so which which dovetailed powerfully with the whole me too movement right um and she then retroactively said dumbledore's gay which got her a raft of shit from the right and you know and 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 then of course the right was always saying this is paganism and satanism and all yeah. the on, on all the predictable kind of stuff so what what do you see and again now we can kind of pop out of the even mm-hmm proximity to the culture wars into now, like what is happening as far as belief systems, cultural movements, where is the center, where are norms, what, what counts as inside versus outside and who decides? Um, how, did, how did she get outflanked? On such what is just statistically, not 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 ethically, but just percentage of a population it applies to, right? Um, trans rights, uh, you know, is sub one percent, depending on who's mm-hmm. counting how, right? You know, I mean, three percent, six percent, some say, but just round up, you know, and say it's a small fraction compared to all of womanhood. It's a small fraction compared to, um, you know, anybody of an underclass sense of oppression. How did that happen? Um, from your, from you know, from your lens, from the sort of shifting sands of belief um, around her, you know, fans' adherence or this generational cohort.
0: So, I want to answer this question with sort of, uh, I'm going to take a moment because I do want to be very careful in how I how I say this. Um, I think that what's significant from a let's say a sociological perspective here, again, without talking too much about about the specifics. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to I, I'm not sort of qualified to be the person to talk about um, sort of the uh, trans trans rights activism uh, sure. more broadly, uh, is that I think that this idea of both representation and harm, which is to say ideas that we might see ourselves reflected in a work of art in, uh, and, and see our identities reflected in a work of art and that that is a major part of the uh, compact between writer and reader and also that uh, certain kinds of art um, have the potential to do certain kinds of harm to people uh, language like erasure or invisibility uh, as well uh, both in terms of the content of, of the work but in terms of all auth- in part like authors public um public political commitments, that these, these things all sort of fit together. And I think the way in which it fits together is this notion that, um, our relationship, that, um, who we, I'm going to just take a moment to, to phrase this properly, um, that we not only, uh, want to, but perhaps, uh, morally should or part of the the purpose of art is to uh reflect to us um certain certain truths uh morally loaded truths about our uh, our identities as it were and now you can say and i think a fair case to be made is that like what is art what ought art to be there have always been questions about the moral quality of art what is depicted um, what should be depicted? But I think in this particular, um, this particular case, a particular contemporary instantiation of how we kind of relate art, media representation, morality, and harm is this idea that um, there's a kind of ownership uh, on the part of fans that we we think of ourselves as as having. We think of creators as responsible to us in uh, us the fans in certain ways. Um, you you see this uh in in you know a completely different direction in like the success or failure in various ghost bookbusters movies, you know, giving it to the fans mm-hmm. versus, you know, the we need representation here, or we we don't want one of those movies that that's terribly, you know, quote unquote woke because that's you know betrayal of other kinds of fans. Like I don't think this is exclusive to social justice as a as a movement either. Um, but I think that people who um love certain cultural properties are more liable now uh, than 10 or 20 or 30 years ago to feel a kind of personal emotional betrayal from creators who do not um, kind of hold up their end of the bargain either in terms of uh, creating work in a certain way that is satisfying uh, on, on narrative grounds but also on representational grounds or in mm-hmm. terms of how uh, creators uh, comport themselves in terms of their public politics. And. Oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, just to say like, obviously, you know, you have everything from like people canceling the Dixie chicks after, uh, you know, based on their comments on, on people, people have always uh, had uh, responses to the public political opinions. But I think that sense of betrayal that like mm-hmm. you, we have this contract and, and, I don't think it's a necessarily bad entitlement or good entitlement, but it's a sense of entitlement to certain a certain kind of relationship has become normative in how fans think about.
2: There's a, there's an analog here between like you know the sacred text, right? Star Wars and the whole, and, and that had a blowback from a different fan community. They're like, oh wait, a black stormtrooper and a woman Jedi, this is bullshit, man. Right, like that whole thing, right? As well as the subversion of red pilling, which used to meant, you know, Gnostic awakening to the powers that be think different, Apple campaign, that kind of thing, and instead became, you know, incel you know, territory. Um, and the same with Harry Potter that we've just been exploring. Is it that, you know, it's not just reader response. It's not just these are, our, but these are actually our sacred texts. These are our scriptures and that subsequent, um, once they're instantiated and canonized, then subsequent interpretations become heresy. It's not unlike, you know, Valentinus and, and, the, and the early Gnostics, right? You you must burn and pillory them because they are a threat to the established norm of our sacred scripture.
0: Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I think that there is something kind of sacred texty about Harry Potter in particular because it was such a kind of formative cultural mythos in a way that like i think a different author expressing similarly uh controversial or problematic views would not have necessarily um engendered the same response in in their readers but jk rowling was a kind of beacon uh just of of a certain kind of narrative a certain kind of modern myth and so the betrayal i think was all the more acute for that Hmm.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, so, so let, let's um at least lightly thematically transition into what you've been writing about most recently, right. With self-made and, you know, um, because th- this is one that's been ticking over in my head to take a crack at, and you've just taken a, a really long and thorough one, um, which is, you know, fundamentally the sort of the emergence of, you know, what you could call avatarism, you
1: mm-hmm. know, like
2: I'm not just who I was born, where I was born, race, class, creed, place, you know, all of those things, faith um, and, you know, all that is it's, I get to be whoever I want to be. And without a doubt, and everything from Comic-Con to Burning Man to Facetune filters from my social media profile, you know, heading this way soon to a fully instantiated metaverse, right? The idea that my selfhood is plastic and elastic and and I am in charge of it. How how do we what do you see are positives of this kind of um postmodern liberation theology you know like like in a new new term uh of of avatarism i can be whoever i want to be in whatever world i choose to play in versus a descent into that solipsistic narcissism i'm just crawling up the asshole of my own reflection
0: so i think that the story of the sort of development of self-making towards what you call avatarism, mm-hmm. um at its best, at its most liberatory, is uh, a narrative um of of social mobility. um the idea that uh, you could be born penniless, you could be born uh, in, you know, from from a, a disadvantaged background, whatever that looks like. and still, Rise, rise above it. Uh, have sort of certain kinds of economic and personal success uh, dictated by your own personal merits, ability, what have you. This is, uh, you know, th- this is sort of a very simplistic narrative. It's also a very significant one. And you look at sort of uh, prophets of of self making, like uh, Frederick Douglass, who who famously gave a series of lectures on the self made man, uh, had this vision in mind. You know. We, particularly we in America, this place where this thing, this, this, this great new thing ought to be possible, um, can have a vision of someone who is kind of not a born aristocrat, but becomes, um, becomes truly noble by virtue of what he can do. Uh, And, and this, this legacy uh, has been extraordinary extraordinarily good and significant for so many people from what we might call sort of traditionally marginalized backgrounds Mm -hmm. at the same time and again very big caveat um this idea that we can become who we want to be uh more often than not doesn't actually function in a particularly liberatory way it it either functions in kind of one of two uh one of two strains, I identify my book, the traditional American strain and the way it's used is this kind of democratic narrative of like work hard and you can be who you want. And in practice ends up sort of justifying wealth inequality by saying, well, if, if, Guess they didn't work hard enough and guess this millionaire is, you know, deserves to be there and ties into this, this uh, kind of theological understanding that we talked about earlier, this idea that the universe just wants you to be rich. The universe wants you to be healthy, that there is a kind of metaphysical unity between the successful entrepreneur and the energy out there in the universe broadly conceived. Uh, so that's one strain. The other strain, what I call the aristocratic strain in my book, that's uh, tended to be more popular in in Europe or tended to sort of take hold in in Europe, is this notion that, well, some people have some quality innately that allows them to kind of become modern day aristocrats, as it were. That, that they they may maybe they don't come from the right background, but they simply have this innate quality. We see this in in for example. Uh, early celebrity culture, the dandies, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, leading into ultimately into, into Hollywood, where these these scenarios converge. The idea of it, star power, something. There is something about you that makes you special and better from other people. What is it? And ultimately, I think, particularly in the 20th century and and onwards, these ideas have converged. That the narrative goes something like. There is some innate, special, superior quality about who you, quote unquote, really are that you're born with that also through hard work and careful cultivation, you can display. And by displaying it correctly to the world and, you know, working hard and hustling, you're also showing something true and innate about who you really are. It's a sort of careful double motion of you're crafting it, but it's also within you and therefore real. And I think towards the end of the 2020th. So century, sort of
2: synthesized it. and signified it factor.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we get to kind of the post-Warhol era and suddenly it becomes artificiality and authenticity converge. And you get this real idea. I am who I want to be. I take all... I, I present myself in perhaps artificial or manicured way. Um, I... I construct my my public persona carefully, but it is revealing something deep and true about me that is deeper and truer than the circumstances into which I was born. And that, you know, can be liberatory, has been liberatory, but all too often um, ends up kind of divinizing our own uh, desire, because in the absence of saying these other things are really real have weight as reality what you you end up with is my desire what i want is the realest thing about me it is the closest thing basically to a soul that i have and often um is is my
2: representational self
0: yes absolutely Or my desire my the the force of desire in me is basically my animating principle my deepest self my soul and I think what's fascinating, if you look at the history of this ideas of self-making, both this American democratic and European aristocratic kind, is that they're always bound up with the language of magic, spirituality, divinity, we are as gods. This is a sort of, in, in the 19th century, a lot of the French dandies saw this as a quasi occult practice, this self, uh, self-making, self or uh, as one occultist put it, caloprosopia, the the art of the beautiful personality, Um, there's a magic to making yourself. And I think that that spiritualized notion, uh, even in our contemporary world, uh, still there, there's a kind of metaphysical, religious truth to this uh, authentic artificiality. Mm.
2: <laughs> well I mean I must say you 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 took like strange rights just is is sort of fun and bouncy and you you know you you demonstrate your scholarly chops and how you pass the details but the but the selection of evidence is is mostly all you know contemporary like pop culture bing 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 with self-made, you take a long run at this thing. I mean, you start back in the back in the Renaissance. You talk about the early Renaissance painters and sculptors and how they were self-made. Like, what inspired you, or what did you feel was required? What required that much scene setting to get to Kim Kardashian? Uh,
0: so, my my background, I mentioned um, I did a doctorate in theology, but my my doctoral thesis was on uh, theology and dandyism in late nineteenth century Paris. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm a 19th centuryist at heart and my, my intellectual background is actually much, much older or, or rather, uh, the periods I study tended to be older. The, uh, the more modern work was actually a bit of departure for me. And so okay. what I really loved about self-made, uh, was the chance to go back into earlier sources and really kind of explore what I think of as a. Theological crisis uh, and as well as a cultural crisis um, at its beginning point and then sort of keys it into how do we get to Kim Kardashian? Uh, So I got to go a little older than my my doctoral research as well as a little a little newer. But I think that if we just talk about um, the 1960s or we just talk about the rise of the Internet or boomers, um, all of that gets us um, plenty of insight into our contemporary uh, artificial Authentic hybrid culture, but I think it's only by seeing the kind of seeing this as something integral to what we might call modernity like this this tension about what it means to be free or given what it means to be uh, self self-invented versus uh determined by a, a social imaginary and social hierarchy uh you can't really separate that from the crises of, of meaning and modernity that come out of new kinds of social mobility and certainly new ways of thinking about and talking about god and religion and so hmm. uh my my uh I joke that my shtick sometimes is taking cultural phenomena and saying, well, this is why it's really all about theology Uh, and as a theologian, I want to do it. But uh, self-made, I think, is my attempt at looking at Kim Kardashian and saying like, there is a theological explanation for this. Uh, Yeah. And then starting starting, uh, with Albrecht Durer and the Renaissance and going on from there. I like
2: big butts and I cannot lie, right? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah, the theology, right, of of that whole experience. And I mean, um, I think people are forgetting, like even now. That especially like I I almost felt like there was a watershed when um what's her younger sister she's got Kendall and Kylie Kylie? I think when when Kylie made it onto the Forbes list as a you know faked but close billionaire list and she made it onto the cover right that was a sort of memory holding of where the entire Kardashian clan came from which was just a decade earlier she was Paris Hilton's assistant. Right, and Paris yes, was yes. famous for being famous, almost jaja gabor <laughs> Hollywood Square style, right? Um, and and there was huge amounts of contempt directed at Paris, right? But but in, she's actually the heiress to the, one of the largest brands on the planet, so she wasn't there was she wasn't nothing, right? She was just <laughs> super wealthy, and and Kim was just an assistant, right? Sex tape, you know, E E show. Later, you have the entire. Kim generation, but then the next generation of Kylie and Kendall sort of had sanctified. It was almost like the, the sort of, you know, the, the robber barons who then become nobility because they mm. they make their fortunes and it all gets conveniently forgotten that two, you know, two generations back, they arrived on a boat, you know, and it was that sort of reset. And and it made me think of, if it's okay, I'd love to just like take three minutes, lay out this thought because it was it came up as you were describing it, right? Which is... Um, there was a really good article in the Atlantic. I don't know, like three, four years ago, and it was about the the film Reality Bites, which had like Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller mm-hmm. and Winona Ryder, and it was kind of one of the, uh, you know, canon book uh, or films of, you know, Gen X slackerism, right? And it was yep. Ben was a slick movie producer, TV producer, and and Ethan was the heartfelt guy, and who gets the girl kind of thing. It was one mm-hmm. of those, and. The whole article w- was then juxtaposing that that selling out was the was the cardinal sin of Gen X, selling out, and this is Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, all right, all those things, right don't ever be a fucking sellout and then it was juxtaposing that with the kardashians where mm. in fact the entire millennial influencer instagram like all we do is sell out in fact we're constantly selling ourselves and you can make socio political economic understandings of why that had to be post 08 all that kind of stuff but nonetheless the the stigma against being for the man being for the machine being a capitalist pig which maybe even their lefty boomer parents might have had none of that Applies at all, and it's clicks, hits, likes, sponsors, free shit, and self promotion. And if you wind this clock back one step further to like Adam Curtis, right, that wacky British documentarian um, who does those insane pieces. But he, you know, he he did one a few years ago on what I thought was really interesting. He he said basically there was this the evolution of the self, and and everything was going great, and there was sort of you know up to the revolutions of '68. Right. The summer of 68, where you had the Democratic Chicago conventions, you had Prague, you had Paris, you had all those sort of this uprising of socially engaged political activism by the younger generation. And he said, and then we got our asses handed to us and nothing happened, nothing changed. So then there was this inward turn. And it went to the back to the land movement. It went to, if you want to change the world, don't get, you know, don't get maced and and, 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 and be batoned in the streets. Go to go to a retreat, go to Esalen, right? And so you had this retreat from socially, politically, ethically engaged activism and inward, you know, and again, Eastern, you know, mixed and then, you know, neoliberal mixed spirituality, right? You get this Eastern turn, inward emphasis, decrease in political agency, and then that bumbles along through Gen X, and then arrives into the millennial generation and then becomes hyper-commodified. And that inward growth, personal development is everything. It's alpha and omega, and there's nothing else to be done, except we're all just patsies for the slot machine of capitalism.
0: How do you see that? I think think you're exactly right in your diagnosis. And I think that what we're actually what we're seeing is a kind of profound nihilism uh, and a kind of pessimism that turns into uh, you might as well sell out because if again as in the among the the robber barons of the 19th century with their obsession with new thought and this this notion of sort of proto-prosperity gospels like the universe wants you to be rich and I think that this sort of slightly more nihilistic contemporary version is like you might as you know, what is the universe of what we make it? So we might as well commodify what we can. You know, wait, wait, Why, say, say that again. We might as well commodify what we can while we can. That there's a sort of selling out is, is I think, less seen as uh, bad or or dangerous because there isn't a conception of some sort of truth to be held on to over and against money. It's, you know, if we want to live our best lives and be our most authentic selves and. Money helps us do that. Suddenly, I think that there isn't we, why not do that? If nothing kind of matters anyway, which I think is the kind of quiet, um, the quiet despair at the end of our gospel of self-actualization that the world is what we want it to be. Uh, we are who we want to be. Nothing means anything other than what we choose. Um, what is holding us back from literally converting some of ourselves, some of our desires, some of other people's desires for us? Uh, literal attention on us in the form of clicks and likes why not turn that into cash which we then put back into ourselves um i mm-hmm. think i think we don't we don't have an idealistic enough conception of art for uh selling out to even be something that uh makes sense to us on a broader cultural level that's depressing
2: mm-hmm. Oof. well i mean i i also wonder i'm like wait a sec that at the same time that you're describing that, that kind of just might might as well get mine, mm-hmm. right? Because if I don't, someone else is, and I'm seeing it all beamed into my screen every day. Um, And on the other hand, we've got, again, on the kind of more social justice side of the progressive spectrum, some increasingly um, bare knuckles, Marxist, anti-capitalist critiques, right? And, and do you see those as entirely distinct sub-communities, or is there some kind of curious overlap did you do you have like let this if we say sort of instagram influencer is one bucket roughly and then social justice neo Marxist is another do the do the do the twain meet or are those actually really separate subcultures even if it's the same generational cohort
0: oh i think they absolutely meet and overlap um i think that let's say at their best or at the most idealistic however you want to say it i think one of the the strongest cases that can be made for the social justice world is uh, that it is a a good faith, morally uh, robust attempt to recover certain kinds of ethical and moral principles in a world that doesn't seem to have them to call for solidarity in a world that does not seem to often allow for it. Um, but where often, uh, and I do want to be careful only because I, I always want to be extra careful when wading into uh, culture war discourse. Sure. Um, I think that often when it turns to two things are true one is that the social justice language is so marketable now that um you know every single brand uses it you're trying to sell razors uh you might want to do a don't be a toxic man uh razor commercial you might want to have a commercial about someone uh Teach. Uh, I believe this was uh, Gillette that did this. That teaching your your trans son to to shave for the first time. Like these are are now marketable. Uh, the same way that like other forms of wellness and spirituality have been marketable. That uh, moral seriousness is itself a commodity, and I think we're see- we're seeing that sort of so much more broadly in our media landscape. That uh, just as spirituality has been commodified, so do the kind of idealistic vision of of solidarity. Uh, that, that we fight in social justice movement, also been quantified. Uh, I also think, on top of that, that the um, language of, let's say, representation, or or the language of certain kinds of like support businesses owned by uh, this group, or what have you, that a lot of the ways in which um, a kind of better world is envisioned, uh, is st- by uh, in a better and more, more solidaristic, solidaristic world is envisioned, it's still kind of done through the lens of this more, let's say, capitalist worldview. Um, so you you know, you know can both sell anti-capitalism. I was trawling on Etsy the other day and I, I don't even know I got on this, but there's a, an account called Pretty in Praxis that sells like sexy bimbo stickers that are anti-capitalist, like don't be a landlord one of them was like, don't be a landlord, be a whore, their words. Um, and I just thought like this, you're, you're selling this, you're making money on this. Like you you really can't get one form of discourse out of the other very easily.
2: So um, only, only fans, not Airbnb. Is that is that what
0: Exactly, I think <laughs> I, yeah, that's literally what it was. Um, and so I think that it is, while I can see more broadly and at its best in the, the sort of social justice movement, Uh, a move away from or a desire to move away from the like most obvious like goop Gwyneth Paltrow and girl boss offenses of modern individualism. Um, I think that the movement is still culturally downstream from uh, comprised of a generation defined by so much of the kind of intuitionalism and uh, post-capitalist nihilism that uh that they're trying to get away from uh and i'm sure you can say that of all movements that uh they they are we are all um all all uh, subject to the uh the cultural miasma into which we are born and this is no exception
2: (laughs) i mean is that basically seems i think i think we're kind of fucked, right is is that really i mean so 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 what i'd what i'd love to what i'd love to uh give you the last word on and, and a chance because this has been one of my curiosities for, you know, a couple of decades of, of academic work and that kind of stuff is paying attention after tracking the first and second Great Awakenings to being like, well, when is the third, right? And obviously different people have tried stumping for the third and even the fourth and this kind of thing. None have really stuck. Mm. Um, they're sort of all <clears throat> somewhat niche arguments. Um I think the 60s, some people sort of trotted that out and said, hey, this is this whole awakening to human potential, the whole psychedelic wave one uh, renaissance, all, all of that, you know, Woodstock to uh, levitating the Pentagon, et cetera. Those were markable signs of comparable social movement. Um, but let's just say for the sake of argument that we haven't yet had the definitive be all, the, the mm-hmm. great awakening. Um, what's it going to look like? Who's going to lead it?
0: I mean, I I think we're in it now, though. So I, I'm afraid I'm gonna I'm gonna come down and say I think this is what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, I think that this. And what are your this, hopes
2: are for it too?
0: My hopes for it. Uh,
2: yeah. Like, what must it do?
0: Um, save our souls. It probably should fail. Um, I think that okay. The best case scenario is that we have a resurgence of hunger for, um, not just. Personal spiritual ful- fulfillment, which is what I think we are seeing and where I think it's going wrong, but kind of um, collective action. Um, I don't think it is plausible to think that we're going to see uh, the girls of Red Scare aside uh, a resurgence of interest in, in uh, traditionalist Catholicism as the next big thing among the hipsters. Um, but I do think that we will see a kind of more cautious, small C conservatism, which uh, among younger people who will be interested in hungry for we will basically see young people hungry for rules order uh, maybe even those 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 pews that they went to as a kid um though i think that so often you know you see these sort of youth movements saying we want immediacy we want truth we want feeling um i think there will be again for better and and in some cases for worse a hunger for order among people um, a little bit younger than us. I think we're, we're seeing versions of that and um, the, the much discussed uh, sexual conservatism of, of the Generation Z and people a little younger who are having less sex or perhaps more wary about certain kinds of intimacy. Um, but I think more broadly, we are, we are going to see in the in the wake of this much more kaleidoscopic, freewheeling, individualistic great awakening uh, and the nihilism that comes out of it, a desire for something. Real, true,
2: and binding. Mm. Well, that sounds—that sounds like that's almost a, a gloss on the description of your own experience, where you said, "I, I right, a, a craving for yeah. some structure and some rules and some."
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I Episcopal the Episcopal Church is not a bad place to start. I, I'd recommend it, but I think, um, but I do think, and I think we do have danger, uh, the danger as well that some of those political movements uh, and some of those that hunger for order will manifest itself in, like much more explicitly authoritarian ways i'm thinking of the rise of a i mean i guess i don't even know if we still call it the whatever whatever the post alt right is now um oh but it's I'm like set-
2: steve bannon and opus dei it's like that it's like that neck of the woods right yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's um wow evola yeah it's the italian evola, yeah, fascist yeah. right it's like that it's it's yeah i
0: think i think um that that fascinating i think that our fashion i think that there is a a good faith hunger for order and rootedness that unfortunately can lead to some very, very bad places. Um, And maybe I'll leave it there.
2: Mm. So it sounds like then if if we're not to descend into uh, arch reactionary atavism, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You know, uh, uh, and nor succumb to the fascist undertones of, uh, you know, of psychedelic Nietzscheanism, right. Of the Ubermensch. Mm-hmm. Right and ascending up and away. we have to hit the Goldilocks middle of you know it's tight but loose yeah. we, we, right we we have to have some structures and some ethical obligations beyond our endless self-orientation and we also need to have enough fluidity and flexibility and inclusivity right to to create a Mahayana vehicle right <laughs> a, a greater vehicle uh that can that can hold uh more of our brothers and sisters yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and I, I joke that this is, you know, why I'm an Episcopalian. we we're, we're very good at the middle ground uh, in the Episcopal Church. But um I think it's not often it's not often as a sexy or as saleable a soundbite as either we need complete freedom or you know, we need hierarchy and order. Um but I think that uh that yes, uh the the unsexy measured approach that balances both our need for freedom and self-expression and a recognition that self self self-expression of our authentic selves involves contending with the facticity that our authentic selves are socially derived from our communities both those things can be true Hmm.
2: fantastic well, Tara, thank you. Uh, thank you been, so much. I'm, it's I'm, been a always, wonderful conversation. I'm always super geeked. I mean, basically anthropology plus religion, you know, plus pop culture is is my absolute briar patch. So uh, it's a it's a delight to get to hear your ideas, and and also for anybody that hasn't checked out Strange Rights, do uh, it's it's available now, and and for um for your new one, Self Made. When does that come out?
0: Uh, that comes out in late June, 2023, this year. Mm-hmm. Gosh.
2: Isn't it amazing? I mean, I'm reading your galleys and I'm like, "Oh boy, I bet you're really you bet you, know, like you, you you're you're an old hand so you know. Like but m- most new writers like, "When I finally finish the book, then I'm done." And you're like, "No, you're like at the halfway mark." So, m- much much uh, you know, appreciation and encouragement for the the final 6 months and look to st- look forward to stay tuned on how that goes out into the world.
0: Hey, thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Be well, Tara. Bye.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.